I want to begin with a question today. When you go on vacation, what types of books do you like to take with you? So I have to tell you, I always get a bit of a kick out of the reading lists that populate our popular culture, particularly as we get closer to the summer months. Going to the beach? Hey, here's a list of popular reads for the time you'll spend soaking up the sun on the sandy shores. Headed for the mountains? Try this list of reads. Of course, most of the lists feature the latest in several predictable categories. There's always fiction for every age group now. Then, of course, the latest biographies. There are books orientated towards sports that are kind of popular right now, as are those that come out of the world of business and enterprise, leadership cells. Most are meant to be quick reads. They're books that you tuck under your arm and carry with you. But this was not the case in the year 2005 when then-President George Bush, on his way to the family ranch in Crawford, Texas, grabbed a copy of historian John M. Barry's book, The Great Influenza. It's not an easy read, not by any stretch of the imagination, and it's one that most people would eschew on the way to the beach. President Bush, on the other hand, is a man not adverse to heavy lifting or heavy reading. The book, if you're familiar with it, provides readers with a deep dive into the pandemic of 1918, the year the world met the so-called Spanish flu. Albert Gitchell, an army cook in Kansas, is credited as the first recorded case of the flu, March 4, 1918. He was the first, but certainly, as we now know, not the last. As the U.S. participated in the First World War, the virus would spread somewhat quickly to other parts of the world. What began in Camp Funston in Kansas spread to Europe. Then France, Great Britain, Italy, Spain, Warclaw, Odessa. Through prisoners of war, the flu spread to, to Germany, Russia, North Africa, India, Japan, China, Australia, you name it. The world was struck with their first pandemic. While the first wave of the flu did not prove overly deadly, the second wave, which began in August of 1918, was, as were the third and fourth waves. In fact, by the time all was said and done, the flu had killed some 50 million people worldwide, with 650,000 of those residing in the United States. By the way, to put that number, 50 million, into perspective, it's estimated, as of this podcast, that COVID-19 has taken the lives of 3 million globally. Wow, the Spanish flu really did a number. What struck President Bush as he read the history of the flu was a question. Is it possible that the Spanish flu provides a foreshadowing of something that is to come? Learning that pandemics often occur every 100 years, Bush did the math, and things did not add up. What he knew was, were a pandemic to hit America, our country would not be ready. There were not enough masks, not enough ventilators, not enough critical supplies. Frankly, there was no plan in place for something that now seemed to the president inevitable. Remembering recent history, we know, of course, that Barry's book provided President Bush the impetus to create a task force responsible for creating a pandemic plan. Bush, maybe you remember this, invested some $7 billion in preparation for what he believed would soon come. By the way, several presidential administrations following Bush downplayed and even ignored the plan that Bush created. 
living, leaving America flat-footed when it, COVID-19, did come. The lesson? Pretty simple, right? Pay attention to things from the past that foreshadow those things that are to come, which takes me to the subject of our podcast today. In today's episode of God-Sized Living, it's my hope to make a case for the Bible's foreshadowing of one, or perhaps I should say more properly, ones who are to come in the last times. John, in his epistles, calls them the Antichrists. Paul points us to one that we generally refer to as the Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness. So let me ask you this. Who or what is or are the Antichrists? I want to delve into this with a little bit of depth. This will take us through a number of episodes, but we need a starting place. And that starting place is none other than, you guessed it, the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Over the last several podcasts, we've recognized, I hope, just how significant chapter 11 is, not only to the story of Daniel and his time, but for us today. The scene of this chapter, of course, begins with Jesus. We've been calling him Rambo Jesus, coming to Daniel to show him that behind the curtain that divides the seen world from that which is unseen, a battle is going on, a battle between angels, those that belong to God, and those that are fallen, and we call them demons. Here's the thing. What God wants Daniel to understand is the reality that fallen angels, demons, do play the role of influencing people in our world, and their influence is aimed at one target, stopping the word, shutting it down. In fact, I've always said that there is one thing that Satan and his angels fear, and it is the Word of God. Why? Well, Paul tells us why. In Romans chapter 10, it's because the Word has the power of the Spirit. It's through the Word that faith is created and sustained. So shut it down. Shut it down, and you have something much more powerful than any virus or pandemic. You have the power to capture souls for eternity, and eternity of hell, that is. So what does Jesus do? He comes to Daniel and shows him history. Look at it this way. President Bush was reading a story about the past and its implications for the future. What Daniel is reading and hearing from Jesus is a story about the future that is to come and its implications for the church and our lives as followers of Jesus. It's in this context of pointing Daniel to the future that Jesus points Daniel to a figure that would not arrive on the scene of history until the year 175 B.C. His name? Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a Greek king, who in every respect foreshadows the Antichrists that are to come, those that are active in our world today. So let's do this today. Let's begin our journey towards understanding what's happening in our world today by doing a little bit of what President Bush did in the year 2005, looking back at history and understanding the figure of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. For today, I'll call him the foreshadower. Now, I have to tell you that one of the things from my past that's really helped me appreciate the concept of foreshadowing is a little book titled Understanding the Temple that Jesus Knew. If you're not familiar with it, the book was written by Lean and Kathleen Rittmeyer. It's published in 2017. I'm not going to get into the book too deeply today. Uh, the temple's not the subject in front of us, but foreshadowing is. And I have to tell you that Rittmeyers, in their book, do a great job of helping readers see, in the temple, all of the elements. Elements that stood before the Jewish church for centuries that point directly to Jesus. 
When you walked in the temple, you couldn't help, unless you were blind, but to see Jesus. In the temple, there stands a seven-fold lampstand. Seven is the number used throughout the Bible to represent Jesus. On the table of the temple are 12 loaves of bread, and we call it the showbread. What did Jesus call himself? I'm the bread of life. By the way, I think about this every time I take the Lord's Supper. The Holy of Holies is a cube constructed to be 10 feet by 10 feet. 10 is God's number for perfection, and who is it that perfects us? The one whose blood covers us, Jesus. Speaking of blood, isn't it significant that resting in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of Covenant, containing, guess what, the Ten Commandments? I don't know about you, but I've not been able to keep it in one of them. So, what happens when the high priest, once each year, enters the Holy of Holies? He sprinkles the blood of sacrifice over the Ark. Hmm. Jesus' blood covers our sin. I'm telling you, if you've, if you've really never thought about it before, pick up the Rittmeyer's book. It points to the way that every single item in the temple really foreshadows Jesus. In other words, God is consistently placing before us things that point us forward, that tell us, think about President Bush here, hey, you better get ready for this. And that's what Jesus does for Daniel right here at this juncture in chapter 11. I'm going to read this for us, and I want you to pay attention to what Jesus is doing. He's pointing Daniel to a political figure that is to come, but he's doing it for a reason. He wants Daniel, and us, especially us, to see how this figure foreshadows the Antichrist or Christs to come. So, let's read the words that we find in chapter 11, verses 21 to 22, and 31 to 32. Lord, we just ask that you give us your wisdom as we read this word. All right, here we go. Verses 21 and 22. Read as follows. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Verses 31 to 32. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offerings, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So, so let's walk through these words. Remember with me that throughout the whole of Daniel 11, Jesus has been painting a very precise picture of history. For Daniel. It's a picture of the rise and fall of kingdoms from Alexander the Great forward. The words we just heard continue the picture by taking us to 175 BC, at which time Antiochus IV becomes the king of Greece. But how does he become king, and what kind of king is he? I want you to notice that in verse 21 we immediately begin to answer that question. Here Jesus describes Antiochus as contemptible, and if you pay attention to Jesus, he names the reason for calling him this. Did you notice the words? I'm going to read them again. The scripture says that he shall arise to take the place of a king, but, listen to this, to whom royal majesty has not been given. Do you remember how Antiochus became the king of Greece? At the death of King Seleucus, who, by the way, was poisoned, that's how he died, Antiochus's nephew, Demetrius, became the rightful successor to the throne. So why did he not become the king? Remember with me, the answer is quite simple. Antiochus murdered him. 
That's the words of Jesus to Daniel. Jesus says, Daniel, pay attention to history. So I'm telling you, there'll come a time in Greece, of course, this would be beyond Daniel's lifetime, when a contemptible person will claim the throne of Greece, not through rightful succession, but by murdering his own family member. Oh, and by the way, after he becomes king, he'll do something. He'll use flattery to win the loyalty of the people in the kingdom, including, pay attention to this, it's highly significant, including the Prince of the Covenant. You know who that is? The high priest. Put this together. Here, here's what we know. Based upon historical annuals, when Antiochus IV becomes king of Greece, he uses his position to flatter Greece and its people. He proclaimed Greece to be the center of the world and promised to take the Greek way of life outward from Greece to the rest of the world and to all the world was a part of their great nation. Today we'd call this nationalism. At the time it was called Hellenization. Think about this. I'm going to put a question in front of you. If there were one group of people on earth that should have resisted the Hellenization of culture, after all, Greek culture is pagan, who should it have been? The answer is pretty simple. It should have been the church. Yes, God has called the church to live in the world, but he's also called the church to live quite distinctly from it. Frankly, what happens when the church becomes like the world? Well, Jesus said it best. It loses its saltiness. It's no good for anything anymore. In fact, remember, Jesus said, throw it out. That said, remember that Antiochus was an adept politician who used his seat to exploit everyone that might represent a threat to his power, including the church. So what did Antiochus Epiphanes do? He caused the high priests of Israel to come under his selection process. If Israel was to have a high priest, he would appoint them. Certainly not the Jews, not even God. This in turn gave rise to a corrupt period of time in which individuals bribed their way into the role of high priest. Not, not only did they have to come under the rule of Antiochus, but they had to promote the agenda of Hellenization. They had to support it, encourage it, install it in Israel. This is the deceit by which Antiochus ruled, and it's why Jesus says even the prince of the covenant, the high priest, will be swept away by him. Here's what I want you to keep in mind. All of this, all of this deceit, flattery, bribery that went on during the reign of Antiochus within the political and religious realm foreshadows, there's the word again, what will someday come through the Antichrists. By the way, I believe that that time is here now. And that's something we'll spend time on in the future sessions. Oh, and there's more. This is why I had verses 31 and 32 read as well. Because I believe that these verses are descriptive of the aim of the of Antiochus, which also foreshadows what I believe we're beginning to see in increased measure today, namely Antiochus's all-out effort to silence the word of God. Listen again to the words of verses 31 and 32. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. He shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. We'll spend more time on this in our next section, but here, here's what I want you to hear today. Hear the fact that within the course of history, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, will become the first Greek king to actually profane the temple of God's people. Nebuchadnezzar burned it to the ground. That's true. Solomon's temple. But remember this, under Persian ruler Cyrus Darius, it would be rebuilt. 
It's the rebuilt temple that Antiochus will defile, and defile badly. Not only so, but the Jews, the followers of God, who abandoned their way of life and adopted his platform of Hellenization, Antiochus would reward. Those who resisted, well, let's say it this way, let the battle begin. Antiochus would punish. <clears throat> I want to get into this next week, because I believe it has a lot of significance for the church today. But for today, I want to leave you with three questions. Question one. I read this text. I think, is it possible that one of Jesus' purposes for painting this picture of Antiochus IV in the scripture is to point the church today toward being prepared for someone or someones with both the political and spiritual realm who have the intent of shutting down the word of God? Is that possible? I ask because I know that Jesus, while he speaks these words to Daniel, is asking him, Daniel, to record these words. Not, not so much for his own sake. Dan Daniel will die long before he's able to see the rise of Antiochus. I think these words are for our sake today. Which leads to question two. Question two, where, where do we see activity right now, both within the political and spiritual realms, that have the effect of shutting down the word of God? I, I'm talking about right here in our own country, the United States. Globally, we see it. And we see it readily. Try opening a church in Beijing without the authority of the government. It's not going to happen. Try to set up a shop in downtown Baghdad. In fact, why not begin by simply declaring that the Quran is a deception to the residents there? I think you'll die pretty quickly. It makes sense to us that there are forces in political and religious realms outside of the United States where it's easy to find people that exemplify the kind of ruler Antiochus Epiphanes the force foreshadows. But what about, what about here in the West? What about the United States? Where, where do we see activity right now that carefully examined has the intent of really shutting down the word and the life that it calls us to as followers of Jesus Christ? Where do we see that? Finally, question three. Is it possible that Hellenization is taking place in the Western church right now? I mean, even as we join together in this podcast. Now, of course, I'm using the word metaphorically, not literally. So what I'm asking is, have we reached a point in the West where the majority, the majority of the visible Christian church has succumbed to the way of our culture, where the church has lost its salt, where it really is good for nothing but to be thrown out? I know that each of these three questions are kind of heavy, heavy lifting questions, but I want to challenge you to think about each of them as we'll continue our look at Antiochus as the foreshadower next week. Until next week, then, I just encourage you to have a God-sized week. <laughs>